Good morning, Christ Community Church. How are we? Good, good. Hey, listen, before we get into the preaching of the Word, I just wanted to let you know, after this morning, we're going to take a little brief break from our study in the book of Ephesians, because next Sunday is Palm Sunday, uh, and then leading into uh, Easter Sunday, the week Sunday after that. You know, Palm Sunday introduces the most important week, not just in the Christian calendar. Palm Sunday introduces the most important week in the world, uh, and that's not an understatement. Uh, well, as some of you may know, some of you may not, I was born and raised in the islands of Hawaii. And, you know, Hawaii's got beautiful beaches, great food, wonderful people. It's an island paradise. One thing um, that's great about Hawaii that I didn't realize until after the fact, uh, one other benefit of growing up there was very few of us in those islands cared much about race and wealth. Number one, we were all racially diverse there. Uh, I'm, a Mar- I'm a Mohawk, Indian, Japanese, Scottish, Dutch. My best friends were Puerto Rican, Portuguese, uh, Korean, Filipino, Irish, uh, Hawaiian, Chinese, black. My girlfriend at the time was Italian, Vietnamese. So the whole culture is this mishmash of, of cultures. And because the cost of living is so high, none of us had any money to do anything except hang out, talk, and go to the beach. Well, when I moved to Los Angeles in the early 90s, it was right before the race riots that were sparked by the Rodney King situation. Remember that? I remember distinctly, as many of you do, living here at the time, uh, maybe you weren't doing this particular thing, but hiding from the helicopters that were enforcing the curfew as my band and I tried to get into our cars and drive to our practice studios. I remember watching store owners stand on top of their shops with shotguns to protect their property. I remember watching neighborhoods, not just on TV, but around me, burning, not just with fire, but with anger and with hatred. When it was all said and done, 53 people died because of those riots. There were over 10,000 arrests, and it really didn't stop until the military was called in to stop it all. I don't know if you remember those days. It was a very anxious and tense time of watching the fabric of our society fall apart all the way around us. And then there was Rodney King's famous question that became kind of a cultural, uh, part of our culture was, um, can't we all just get along, right? Apparently, we can't. We just can't. And we learned last week why we can't. Because as the Bible teaches, the core problem of humanity is that we are we could say obsessed, the Bible would say enslaved to self-centeredness. And I said that was actually a working definition of sin that Martin Luther, actually, the reformer, put out there, that our hearts are curved inward. Humanity was created to be God-centered, but according to Genesis 3, when humanity turned their back on God, humanity became self-centered. And so rather than millions of individuals all created to worship and love and serve the one true living king, we have millions of mini kings all created to all wanting to worship and love their own little kingdoms. And that's the world we live in. So so to the degree that you advance the desires of my kingdom, we're going to get along great. And to the degree I advance the desires of your kingdom, you're going to like me. But the moment our borders encroach upon one another, what happens? There's war. And so this hostility between people has bred all this alienation in our culture. Not only individually are we alienated from one another, but we see this at a societal level, don't we? 
So those race riots in the early 90s in L.A., that's just one example of that. If, it, if it's not race, uh, we're alienated from each other because of economics. Remember the, the um, Occupy Wall Street movement we just had a few years ago, and they en- introduced to our culture the 99 and 1%. If it's not race, if it's not economics, it's politics. So we see the combativeness between the political conservatives and the political liberals. If it's not race, if it's not economics, if it's not politics, it's something else. The list is endless, and there's endless ways we can divide from each other as there are people willing to divide from one another, aren't there? And it's not just that it's just in our culture. We get a sense that there was a a better time in the past. The reality, this is the course of humanity. Ever since the, the Egyptians were enslaving the Hebrews, ever since the Marxist was fighting for the rights of the worker, ever since the peasant overthrew the aristocracy and the French Revolution, this is alienation marks humanity. Right? The problem is, it's, it's, not, it's not in our skin, it's not in our wallets, it's not in our voting booths. The problem is fundamentally deeper. And the Bible says that that alienation is far deeper than the surface things that we're always drawn to. That fundamental alienation between God and man is the reason there's alienation between man and man. That's what the Bible teaches. And last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we talked about how God has obliterated that, that, uh, that alienation between he and us. And as we study Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19 this morning, we see how that salvation continues to spread. If, if being saved, last week we talked about meant going from being self-centered to Christ-centered and reconciling our relationship with God, then that salvation continues to work out in reconciliation with one another. And so that's what Ephesians 2, 11 to 19 is going to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, go to that chapter and verse. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, I think it's page number 976 or 977. What I want to do is just pray, and then we're going to read the text, and we'll jump in, taking out two sec- uh, each section at a time. Let me pray. Father, thank you that your word is rich and illuminating to us. Not only does it reveal to us our own selves, it reveals to us the culture in which we live. And Father, being that we are a part of this culture, we're, we're living in it, it's hard not to be influenced by it. So as we read your word, as we study it together, Spirit, would you open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear what we need to, that we might better reflect you in the world we live in, if we don't know you, that we might begin to know you and hear your voice speaking to us, perhaps for the first time. We thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about being saved, ending the self-centeredness, and by ending the self-centeredness of of putting ourselves in the center of our universe, in a sense, we are ending the war with God, because we're no longer fighting Him for rule over our lives. And today, we're going to learn about not how we don't end up fighting one another because we're no longer having our kingdoms battling it out with one another. Our passage divides into two sections, uh, verses 11 through 12. You can write down, remember your past condition. And then verses 13 to 19, recall your gracious reconciliation. So verse 11 to 12, remember your past condition. And 13 to 19, recall your gracious reconciliation. I want to read the passage and we'll jump into it. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice twice here, Paul makes it very obvious what he wants us to do in the first two verses, because he uses the the verb twice, remember. Do you see that? Remember. Remember where they came from and what state they were in before Christ found them and saved them. That word remember, that command, appears over 160 times throughout the Bible. God calls His people to remember. Because a clear implication is we are people that tend to forget, aren't we? And forgetting things that are important can be a dangerous thing. Just ask any husband who's forgotten his wife's birthday or their anniversary. If forgetting that is bad, forgetting that you were a person who once needed grace that you were a person who needed mercy, that you were a person that God had to intervene to change you because you couldn't change yourself, if forgetting, forgetting that is much worse than forgetting a birthday or anniversary. So what is Paul telling these Ephesian believers they need to remember? Well, what Paul wants them to remember was the inadequacies of their pre-Christian life so that they could appreciate the blessings they actually had in Christ that he mentioned in chapter 1, verse 3. Remember, he says that you've been given all blessings in Christ. And Paul reminds them how bad things were. As a matter of fact, he lists off five things that, that reminds them of how bad off they were before Christ had saved them. Look at verse 12. He says, remember that you, at that time, you were separated from Christ. That's one. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They didn't have the blessings that came with Israel. That's two. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. That's three. Having no hope and without God in the world. Those last two are the conclusion of the first three things they didn't have. So Paul wants these Ephesians to remember how things were before they came to Christ. And that would then fill their hearts with gratitude for now being in Christ and all the blessings that came from that. But chances are, much of us here are not stressed out about not being part of Israel, right? Chances are you're not stressed out about not having Torah in your life. So it's hard for us to understand what Paul's getting at. You see, in the ancient world, um, they had something, they were a lot wiser than we were. Uh, They lived in the pre-enlightenment world where they actually believed that there was a spiritual reality still. We living in the post-enlightenment believe in what's called materialism, that there's nothing beyond what we can see and feel, nothing beyond the material aspect of this world. But they understood that there was more to this world than the material. And there was a longing that they all experienced in their cultures. 
And Israel, they would look to Israel and see the blessings of Israel and long to be a part of those. So you'll often see in the New Testament this phrase, God-fearers. Those were people who were not born Jewish, but were attracted to what God was doing in Israel and became a God-fearer. And so they could relate, remembering, yeah, I remember those days when I'd go to the temple of Artemis and the, the emptiness of these pagan religions, and now I have this in Christ. Everything that, that I hoped all these gods would protect me from the demons and powers of this air, Christ does that. Well, but for us, if you look in our world, people are just as well feeling isolated, afraid, alone, alienated. You just have to have the eyes to see it, Right? It's not a spiritual thing as much as it is a material thing in our culture. So there's this growing phenomena of um, this virtual world called Second Life. Anybody hear about Second Life? It's, it's this online world where people literally create a second life and spend hours and hours and hours, some up to six hours a day, being someone and something that they're not in real life. It's because they feel they connect with the other side, people on the other side of that screen. Uh, there's another phenomenon that's growing that maybe you might find a little bit humorous. It's called the cuddle party movement. Anybody hear of the cuddle party movement? Nobody. Okay. Um, there's actually one happening in Los Angeles this month. It's where people, strangers by and large, get together. This is a non-sexual thing and simply cuddle. <laughs> Hold hands. Lay down next to each other. Now, it's easy to look at that and go, oh my gosh, this hippie kind of, I thought the hippie culture died, but the reality is, if you can look behind the thing that's funny about that, this is a whole culture that's dying to be connected to other people, so much so that they will meet a group of strangers and do nothing but just be with each other. So if you've got Second Life, you've got the cuddle party movement, you've got uh, um, uh, the slow food movement, right? You've got the organic movement. You've got all these movements that are a return back to a life that seemed to be more connected and grounded than the kind of fast-paced, shallow world that we live in. See, we may not have to worry and remember what it was like when we worshiped at false, the temples of false gods, but we ought to remember what it was like to be lost and feel completely unanchored and ungrounded in this world. That's a very important thing that we need to do. So the call to remember was a call to encourage them to remember what God had done on their behalf. Because God's people consistently struggle with something called covenant amnesia. We forget the goodness of God in our lives. And when we forget God's goodness, we begin to ask the question, well, God, what have you done for me? What goodness have you shown to me lately? So Paul reminds them, remember, remember what life was like before God's graciousness entered your life. In a sense, Paul's saying, remember to preach the gospel to yourself. That might sound odd. I wonder how that strikes you on your ears when you hear, preach the gospel to yourself. But we need to do that. We need to remind ourselves of the grace that was given to me in Christ. We need to remind ourselves that I couldn't have earned this. I'm not smart enough to have figured it out, but God in his mercy through Christ saved me. Now this is important because if we don't do this, we can become, like the people in verse 11 that I'm going to explain a little bit, a bit arrogant and conceited because of our religion. Now, in your translation, if you're reading an ESV, maybe you have that. Around the phrase, the uncircumcision, there are two quotes there. 
The reason the translators quoted that, because that term, the uncircumcision, was an actually technical term. It was a, a derogatory term that the Jews would use to anybody who wasn't Jewish. If you recall back in Genesis 17, God had given the sign of circumcision as a physical sign parsing out, demarcating all those who were his from the rest of humanity. And the Jews became proud in that sign, so much so that if you were a Gentile, you were part of the uncircumcision. They were proud in their circumcision. It marked them off as unique. No other group did it like they did, and it led to arrogance. And you can see by Paul saying to them, you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcision, and notice what he says here, by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, and he makes this comment, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's a little jab at them. Because you see, the sign of circumcision, it wasn't just the physical sign that set them apart. It was supposed to be a sign of the physical sign representing what God was doing in their hearts. You may have heard the expression, the, the circumcision not of the flesh, What Paul was saying was, look, you've got this physical sign that marks you off as my people, but that's supposed to represent in your hearts, you're circumcised, you're set apart to me. But the Jews missed that and took pride in the physical marking. And so Paul was saying, look, you're called the uncircumcision by those circumcisions, those Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, if they don't get it, it's supposed to be a matter of the heart. Their whole pride is in the thing that doesn't matter. If you don't remember that you needed grace, you soon become arrogant because of those markings, those religious things, those those things that set you you apart. And we do do that, right? When we have things that determine who's in and who's out, whether they're religious symbols like circumcision or economic symbols like flying first class, if we're not careful, rather than these things leading us to humility and gratitude, what do they do? They make us feel proud because we're the ones that are in, and these people are the ones that are out. And it leads to an arrogance. And Paul says the antidote to that is remember to preach the gospel to yourselves, that you didn't deserve this, that you were born into the family line of Abraham, not because of your choice or because of anything else. It was a grace given to you. And if we forget that, we forget the most fundamental things about the gospel, and that is it is a thing by grace. So in what way, how do we preach the gospel to ourselves? What does that look like? That's what 13 to 19 is all about. Recalling your gracious reconciliation. Look at verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Being near to God is a key theme in the Bible. You notice in the very first two chapters, God and humanity are walking daily in the garden. God wants to be with His people. His people then wanted to be with God. You notice at the very last chapters of the Bible, what is the closing scene? That God and man are together again. It makes sense because God loves His creation. God loves us just like a mom or dad loves their children. God wants to be near. And so we see that theme all throughout the Old Testament. God promised to be in the presence of his people, and one day he would make his people in his presence as well. So much so that Moses could say in Deuteronomy 4-7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near us, wherever and whenever we call upon him? That's what Moses was saying. People of Israel, look at what nations like ours where their God is so near to them, right? 
The psalmist could write in Psalm 148, 14, He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. So God met with His people at Sinai, and when they were wandering the wilderness, God had them build a tabernacle so they could be with them. God had His people build a temple so He could be with them. And then most ultimately, in Christ, whose name is also Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has always wanted to be with His people, just as God meets us in His Word today. And that's why we study His Word, isn't it? That's why we read His Word. That's why we memorize His Word, because that's where God meets with us today. That's so important. What a privilege to go and meet with God, one that we need to remind ourselves with all the time, that God wants to draw near to us. We should draw near to Him. But how does that happen? How does that being brought near? If Paul is writing, we were far off, how do we get brought near to God? How do people get brought near to one another? How do people get united? And that's a real important question in our culture, isn't it? How do people get along? And what your answer is to that question is very revealing about you and what you believe ultimately matters. How do people bring, get together? Is it through wisdom and more education and being enlightened? If that's so, we're going to put a huge emphasis on our educational systems and just getting to know more. If we're brought together because our political systems are always at war, then our emphasis is going to be on the political system, and we're going to try and make that bring about peace. If technology is the answer, then we're going to put a huge emphasis in our culture on technology because we think technology is going to bring us together. You see, what we think brings us together reveals a lot about who we are. But none of those things, in the end, truly unites humanity. The Bible says that only Christ brings people together. We see it here. Now, Paul, in verses 14 to 16, has this really tight-knit argument. And so I, I want, what I want to do is focus in on that, and I'm going to try and unpack it, and then I'm going to just ask for a response, okay? If you're a teacher here, you know the desire. You want people to understand what you're communicating. So if I'm not clear, feel free to say it's still not clear. So let's, let's, this is what we're going to do, okay? So notice, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How? Okay? Verse 14. Because, and, and so what I'm going to do, my brothers and sisters, is I'm going to... We all know the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. Okay, you don't hear me talking about the Greek because it's not important. I'm actually going to retranslate some things because I know the Greek behind this English text. So if you hear me switching out a word or two, I'm not adding things into it. It's because I know what the Greek says. If you don't believe me after the service, come with me and I'll show you in the Greek text. I just want to make sure that we're handling God's word correctly, okay? All right, so that's it. So that's a disclaimer. Verse 14. He himself is our peace, Jesus who has made us both one. He did this by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Why, or how did he do that? Verse 15. He did this by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. Why did he do that? That he might create to himself, in himself one new man in place of the two, and therefore making peace. Why did that? Why was that important? Verse 16. So that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Okay, I just threw it out there. I'm going to do it slowly now because this is Paul's argument. He's saying that all of humanity is made one, reconciled. 
Not in the political system, not in the educational system. See, the thing is, we don't need more education. We don't need systems. We needed a rescuer. That's why God sent a rescuer. So Paul says, Jesus Christ is our peace. We who are far off and brought near, he made us both one. How did he do that? By breaking down the wall in his flesh. I'll explain that in a little bit. This dividing wall of hostility. Why did he do that? Or how did he do that? Verse 15. He did this by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. The two being the Jews and the rest of humanity, which includes us. He did this in himself, one new man in place of the two, and thereby making peace. And why was this important? So he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now, this dividing wall of hostility. They would have known very well what Paul was talking about. In the Old Testament, God wanted to be with all people, not just the Jews. So he had a tabernacle created that then became the temple. And in these areas, there was something called the court of the Gentile. Because God's desire was all humanity to get saved, but he had to start with a people and started with a plan. So there was a place for the Gentiles called the court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile, you were allowed to be there to worship God, worship Yahweh, to, to learn about him, but you were not allowed to go any further than that because you were a Gentile, okay? The Jews put, took this to such a degree that they actually put up a dividing wall around this, and they put up signs warning any Gentile that if they so much as crossed that line, they would get killed. Now, let me, in the early parts of the Gospels, Jesus gets so upset. He goes into the temple. He kicks over the tables and the whips. You're all familiar with that. Do you know why he was so upset? All those money makers and money exchangers were set up, guess where, in the court of the Gentiles. See, Jesus was upset because they were involved in not fair trade. He was mad at that. But the problem was the Gentiles had no place to get into the temple now. And Jesus got enraged because the Jews had blocked out any possibility for non-Jews to, to worship God. So Jesus was a furious, and the Jews had this view that they so contempted the Gentile that they would set up money exchanging booths there and not let them in. They put up a barrier. And I want to show you a picture. We found two of these so far. There are many more. I don't expect you to, to be able to read that or see it. It's just an ancient Greek. We found two tablets, one in 1871, one in 1935. This one is in the Museum in Istanbul. And this is what it says. This is the exact translation. Now, keep in mind, there was this barrier all around the court of the Gentile with these plaques mounted at various uh, areas. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now, if you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 31. Paul knew this experience firsthand because three years before he wrote the book of Ephesians, he had been almost mobbed by an angry lynch, or he almost got lynched by an angry mob of Jews who thought he had brought a Gentile into the court past this barrier. Uh, ironically enough, it was an Ephesian Christian by the name of Trophimus. So in Acts chapter 21, there's a recording of the Jews getting so upset that they thought, because they thought Paul had brought a Gentile past these barriers and they wanted to mob them. That's what's going on. So Paul knew very well of this dividing wall of hostility. Okay, now, keep in mind though, 
This was in Jerusalem, right? The, the people he's writing to in Ephesians is, uh, are several hundred miles away. So perhaps maybe they weren't as familiar with this. Here's the point I'm trying to get on this one. The dividing wall that's represented by these plaques, this physical wall was only symbolic of the real division that divided all of humanity. The real dividing wall was the Mosaic law with all of its ceremonial codes and holiness rites. This was just a physical representation of what really divided humanity, which was the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law served as a a real barrier of social barrier, religious barrier, cultural barrier. Let me give you an illustration. If you are a meat-loving man, and you ask out a woman, and you find out she's a vegetarian, it's going to be a little bit of difficulty, right? Because what's the first thing we do in our traditions when we ask someone on a date? We do what? We go out to eat. So if I love my meat, and she's a vegetarian, this relationship ain't going very, very far, is it? So that's just a humorous, small example of the dietary laws that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. So do you see how the, the Mosaic law acted as a real barrier? And Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians that Christ, that God in Christ, abolished the wall and brought humanity together by abolishing the law with its commands and ordinances. Now, if you know your Bible, though, you should be thinking, wait a minute, something doesn't, this doesn't pass the smell test. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 5, ver- keep your finger in Ephesians, go to Matthew 5, verse 17. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus makes this amazing statement. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Wait a minute. Okay, if I look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law. Wait a minute. Ephesians 2 is saying the exact thing that Matthew 5 is saying that Jesus didn't come to do. We have a problem here. You see that? Okay. Jesus and Paul were both referring to the law, but in slightly different ways. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was speaking to the people and addressing the Pharisaic tendency to say that righteousness is in direct proportion to my obedience to the law. Paul here is speaking about the law in more of its, at least primarily, of its ceremonial aspects. So we don't have to worry about our dietary laws anymore. So in that way, the sociological barriers now have come down. But he's also talking about the law in the moral aspect. And here's here's what I'm trying to get at. Jesus did not abolish the moral law as a standard of behavior at all. He abolished the moral law as a means of salvation. Very important. Because to the Pharisees and the Jews, obedience to the law equated salvation. And what Jesus was abolishing, it was not the moral standards of behavior. He doesn't want people living like whatever they want. What he was abolishing was the law as a means of salvation. So by when Paul is referring to how Christ abolished the law, what he was saying was all the sociological distinctions of all humanity 
have been wiped away, as well as the, the, the ceremonial law has been gotten rid of, but also the condemnation of having to obey the moral law. You are not saved by your obedience to moral law. You are saved by grace through faith. And Paul is saying, and you know what? Now everyone comes to God the same exact way. It's not through your obedience to the Torah. It's not through all these other things. Christ abolished all of that so that the two, the Jews and everyone else, could be made one. And their one entrance to God comes through Christ through faith because of grace. So now there's no more pride that the morally upright nor the the liberally enlightened can have pride because that's not how you come to God. You can't look down on each other. A life of grace can only look across and say, look, we need the same life, the life that Christ can give us and only Christ can give us. It's not the life that I get from being morally upright. It's not the life I get from being liberal and accepting everyone. It's the life that I get because Christ fulfilled everything necessary on my behalf, and he gives it to me. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying, and that's why he's saying all of humanity now can be one. It's not whether or not you've obeyed the law better today than you did yesterday, or if, or if this group obeys the law more generally better than this group does. All those things, they make distinctions. When we use the law that way, it's always divisive. The Jews couldn't do it. The Gentiles can't do it. We can't do it. And the reason that's probably, when we use the law as our way of acceptance between God, this group will always pick certain aspects of the law that they can fulfill that this group can't. So they will look down on them, but this group can fulfill certain aspects of the law that this group can't. So they will look down on them. And it goes on and on and on and on, doesn't it? And you know, if we look at our own Christian lives, we could probably see glimmers of that. Oh, I, I, I'm, I adhere to the sexual purity of the Bible. I am very pure. But yeah, do you, do you gossip? Do you, do you tear people apart behind their back, right? Or may, maybe you don't gossip. You're very upright with your speech. Well, how are you on your income taxes? How are you when it comes to fiscal responsibility and accountability? Do you get my point? What Paul is saying is that, look, when we use the law that way, it's always divisive. Christ got rid of all those standards. Listen to John Stott. He says this, Jesus himself, you can go back to Ephesians, Jesus himself perfectly obeyed the law in this life, and in his death bore the consequences of our disobedience. He took upon himself the curse of the law, the judgment that it threatens to those who disobey it, in order to free us from it. One of the best pictures of this, my friends, uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you're a note taker, write it down. Matthew chapter 27. Let me get there real quick. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. This is moments after Christ died on the cross. And Matthew writes, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier, the thing that alienated humanity from God, this really thick curtain, that only one man, one time a year, could go behind that curtain. Matthew 27, 51 says, The moment Christ died, it was torn. I love that Matthew notes it was torn in which direction? Top down. And he just, he just writes that and moves on. What is happening? What is happening is the fulfillment of Ephesians chapter 2. When Christ died, 
that curtain. The thing that alienated God and man forever ripped in two, opened wide open, and now everyone comes in. And that's what Paul was saying happened in Christ. So there's no rooms for there's no room for feelings feelings of being pride or superiority, whether we're morally upright or liberally accepting, we all come to God through grace. And then verses 15 and 16. So Christ creates this one new man, this new humanity, one that's not based on morality or one that's not based on liberty, one that's based on grace. It's really important. It's not a humanity based on morality or liberty. It's a morality based on grace. By the way, grace makes morality and liberty beautiful and appropriate. You see, if you just have morality without grace, that's, that can be suffocating, right? If you just have liberty without grace, that can lead to licentiousness or all kinds of behavior. And, and you see that in our culture, right? We have the moral people who are always lamenting these people who are very liberal, and the liberal people wishing the moral people would lighten up, and they're, they're, they're missing, they're talking past each other because neither one of those are right or wrong in and of themselves entirely. But you need grace to balance it out. And in Christ, this new humanity is what he's talking about. So, verse 15, let's look back at it. Excuse me, the end of 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And, verse 16, might reconcile both to God. In one body, what's he referring to there? He's actually referring to the church might reconcile us both to God in one body. The metaphor of a church as a body is used often in the Scripture, just as the metaphor of, a, of a, the church as a family, the metaphor of the church as a building. They all carry this conceptual weight of this amazing new humanity that Paul's saying is possible because of Christ. So, because if you read that uh, in one body and you think physically, that's going to be a very confusing passage. What Paul is saying is that Christ might reconcile us both to God in one new, in one body, one church through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. You see, that's what he's getting at. There's this, the church is this new humanity. That's why there's no room for social or economic or ethnic distinctions in the church. There's no room for my preferences or majority preferences. There's only room for what the king wants in this new humanity, that people don't live for themselves, but live for the glory of the king in a community of believers. That's what Paul's getting at. We need to wrap it up, but notice in verse 14, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Verse 15, Jesus makes peace, and then finally verse 17, through the church, Jesus proclaims peace. Jesus is our peace, he makes peace, and he proclaims peace. So the answer to the question, can we all just get along? Not until we are all standing at level ground at the ground of grace can we all get along. You see, in order to end our alienation from God, Jesus, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be alienated. In order to bring us back to God, Jesus allowed himself to be cast out for us. This is how the gospel works. Philippians 2 tells us, even though he was near to the Father, eternally near, he left comfort for difficulty. He left home for exile. He left friendship with the Father to be forsaken by man. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, he did this for us. 
And notice the last word in our passage this morning, to make us part of God's household. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the alienation that we feel between individuals and culture feels against culture is a representation of the alienation that exists between God and humanity. But we thank you because in Christ you have done away with that. And Lord, I pray that if there's any sense of alienation or animosity or division that we feel towards one another, we would remember that Christ abolished these things. That he abolished any kind of standards that we need to, to live up to to be good enough. That he abolished them so that we could stand and live in grace. And Lord, we freely admit, living in grace is really hard. It's much easier to go to one side or the other. Father, we pray by your Spirit, you would help us to be a people animated and fueled by grace, that we would remember Paul's word, to remember what we were before Christ, so that it could further increase our, our gratitude for grace. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.